0: So I guess we'll go ahead and, and begin. Uh, we'll begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, the... Yeah, that's right, okay. Lord Jesus Christ, the temple of your body was destroyed on the cross and three days later raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of the, um, me, um, raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of the, the father. Um, visit us now with this same body that we may not deny that we know you but in faith but in faith, hear in our ears your life-giving voice and receive on our lips your very body and blood to strengthen us in times of temptation. for you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit one God now and forever. Amen Okay. It's Really, weird. The, re- the reason why I paused there is because that's that, that's actually a different prayer than what I prayed this morning. Yeah. Oh well, it's all good. Yeah, um, <laughs> the way out. what's that? Catches the way out. Yeah, all right, so we are in chapter 10 and 11 of Has American Christianity Failed? Chapter 10 The End of the World as We Know It. A lot of uh. Uh, information and and things about the end times, uh, eschatology, right? Um, Before we begin the questions, were there any highlights that y'all had uh, right off the bat from this chapter?
1: It was the best review of Revelation I've ever heard.
0: (laughs) It's very succinct, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just uh, the... I mean the five the five rules at the end are really helpful, um, yeah for sure. Anything else? There was no math. No math, yeah right. <laughs> one thousand plus one hundred forty four thousand plus seven plus twelve and all that <laughs> stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no math, no numerological uh, hocus pocus kind of stuff. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> Anything else? <laughs> No? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, then why don't we just dive right in since we do have to get through two chapters here. So, number one, why, why is American Christianity obsessed with the end times? That's a, not a small question. What do you think?
2: Well, I know a lot of Lutherans who believe we're in the end times. Sure. But the disciples believed they were in the end times. Right. So,. In a way,
0: everybody's always believed in the end times. Right, right. And and we'll see in this chapter the different views that can be had. Um, So, yeah, you're right. Lutherans should believe we live in the end times. uh, On Wednesday nights when we have evening prayer, Uh, after the readings, I say, uh, I, I quote, we have a responsive kind of part there from Hebrews, where it says, uh, in many and various ways, the people of old uh, God spoke to the people of old by the prophets, but now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So even beginning with the book of Hebrews, we believe we're in the end times, you know, the last mm-hmm. days before Christ will return. So yeah, we, we should we should study the end times and know what is promised and what is coming and things like that, but should we be obsessed with the end times? No. Yeah, well, I mean, like, how how is American Christianity obsessed with the end times? Well,
3: TV. TV. <laughs> it's
2: like
4: they said, they have one
0: hand on the Bible, one hand on a newspaper. Uh-huh. Yeah. News. Yeah, how do you make sense of all the crazy stuff going on in the world? Uh, I mean, the the Bible is is God's truth, so maybe it's got something to say about it, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of a thought behind it. Then, um,
2: oh, I see wars and rumors of wars. And- mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, uh, but Jesus says, uh, but but when that time comes, raise up your head, for your uh, your deliverance is drawing near, right? So it's like um, it's it's a bit of a different picture than than what most American Christians. Might see about the end times, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, I asked the I, you know, I asked this question this morning, and, and someone said, you know, I, I think we as people uh, are just just as human beings, we're attracted to crisis on some level. We we like it when, when for some for some weird maybe sick reason we like it when things get a little crazy, right? I don't I don't know, and I think that's that's kind of true. Mm-hmm. Um, on some level, uh, mm-hmm. that that when we read in scripture that it's a blessing to live a quiet and peaceable life, mm-hmm. well, after about a day or a week or a month or a year of that, you start going, "Oh, I want some excitement!" You know, I, that's the that, no, yeah. no, yes. no. <laughs> not after a certain point, right? Yeah. I mean, like when you're young, yeah. You guess it's but a young man's game. Yeah, yeah. That's why people become EMTs and firemen and stuff. Trauma nurses, right? Yeah, Yeah. no, yeah. So, so you want to like people? People sometimes get addicted to adrenaline and whatnot, and they just want to want to keep keep things interesting. And it's just like, I mean, but what do you do with scripture when it says a quiet and peaceable life is a blessed thing to have? Right? It's it is. it is it is um i mean cuz cuz then 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 you have the possibility of a um, a more stable life of family and whatnot if if the lord has blessed you with that right mm-hmm. um, so I, I i think there's something to that maybe people are just uh attracted to crisis um and they want to have, and, and as Christians, we want to have the answers as to why these things are happening, right? Um, any other thoughts on that?
2: Well, once I started 24-hour
0: news on television, <laughs> then you know what's happening. Before that, like
2: when we were children, it would be days before you knew anything was happening.
3: Yeah, how about
0: before that when it was weeks or months? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, uh, What was it? Yeah, I think it was, I think I heard something like, World War I, you know, between uh, the assassination of uh, Arch- Archduke Franz Ferdinand, uh, between his death and the start of World War I, it was like several years. Mm-hmm. And it took that long for all the stuff to take place and the word to spread and diplomatic tensions to rise before, I mean, not, but now, yeah, you know, uh, Russia wants to invade Ukraine. They do it tomorrow, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we all know about it. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. Right. right. Um, so yeah, and and people are people get and that's the other bad thing about news or the news channels and the news cycle is that you hear about abductions and murders and rapes and all these things like that, and You wind up not letting your kids go outside and play in the front yard anymore because you're worried that they're gonna get abducted, Mm -hmm. even though you live in a town of like, you know, well, let's say a smaller town than Fredericksburg uh, and one that doesn't have a big tourist population, but you say, well, let's say you live in a town of like 5,000 or Mm -hmm. 2,000, and you know almost everybody in that town, Mm -hmm. chances are your kids are probably pretty safe, but you're so worried by the news cycle that you, want to shelter your kids because you think any moment they're going to get just, you just get abducted, mm-hmm. right? Although that's not necessarily the case. So it, uh, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, is a saying in the news business for a reason, right? And that includes, and I think American Christianity buys into that thought as well, right? Any other thoughts on that? And we're not immune from it, you know? We're not immune from any of this stuff. I mean, when we, when, when, the left behind phenomenon was a big deal back in the nineties and whatever. I, I, I remember people in my Lutheran church growing up talking about it and wanting to read the books. I don't I think there was a there was an increased interest in studying what we believe about the end times, but I mean people were still talking about, you know, left behind rapture and all this other stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So it, we're not immune to the sensationalism of these things. Anything else before we move on?
1: I was thinking about why they would be obsessed with like the thousand-year co-reign with Christ on earth. Mm. I'm wondering if maybe some people in American Christianity like that idea because they want an earthly reward for their goodness. Like they were mm. so good they chose mm. Christ, so they want to see that reward on earth surrounded by you know, non-believers who are witnesses to it, like kind of like a prideful thing, maybe.
0: Maybe, maybe. Uh, that's that's an interesting point. Um, and it's funny that you say that because then it's like what it it makes me think they don't know about the resurrection of the dead. You know, it, it it or at least they don't they don't know enough to realize that in that that in the end, when Christ returns and the and the dead are raised from the graves and and we who are left will be glorified just like the dead are and will be caught up with Christ in the air and, and in the new heavens and the new earth and it's like that's that's even better wouldn't you think mm-hmm. that's even better than the thousand year co-reign with Christ as a, according to the dispensationalists and the premillennialists and things like that so yeah but maybe maybe there's something to that that that, that they want their reward now they hope that they're part of that reign before they die right <laughs> Uh, it's kind of an interesting thing. I never thought of it that way, though. Anything else? No? Well, that's okay. So we have plenty to talk about from this chapter. So, uh, how about number two? American Christianity tends to believe in premillennialism, which teaches that Jesus will come again to establish his kingdom on earth. How does that reflect in other parts of their theology. So if you need a, a refresher on that, like it starts on page 211, I believe, uh, seeing, showing the different millennialism uh, beliefs there. How does that reflect in other parts of their theology?
4: When I was in college I took some theology courses as part of my Bible degree. Mm-hmm. and I think about a third of one year's systematic theology was dedicated to working through all the texts in Daniel and Revelation mm. and parsing out theories as best we could yeah. about how all this was going to stack, you know in, in numerical and chronological terms. Although I don't think any of that is necessarily wrong or sinful, it is a way of studying scripture after sure. all. Yeah. It was referred to at the time as, as the queen of the theologies, as a culminating experience in theology. So you can only do eschatology well, these folks would say, if you understand the whole teaching of scripture on a myriad series of topics. And so hmm. systematics treated eschatology last. Not because it was of least importance, but because it was seen as a field on which to display your alacrity with Scripture and your command of the entire text. Mm. I think that's a mistake. (laughs) It's a mistake. (laughs) How would you go about it? I think centering Scripture in the person and work of Christ is is truer to the message of Scripture. And the work of Christ is understood... Not primarily in eschatological terms. Mm -hmm. Um, Christ is currently working in the life of his church and we have things to do. Um, And uh, I think eschatology can be paralyzing. Um, Mm -hmm. It can also provide a sense that you're being productive when really you're not. It's sort of like the video games of theology (laughs) if if you do it wrongly.
3: Yeah.
4: (laughs) Sweet. The video games. I feel like you're changing something and making a very profound difference in the world, but really you're just rearranging bits of data. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I see what you mean.
0: Um, Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, But yeah, I I would agree with you. Yeah, the person and work of Christ is the central central focus of all of Scripture and theology. And there's a... um, A professor at our at the seminary I went to in Fort Wayne, he coined the phrase "all theology is Christology," and it was kind of funny that he brought he was brought up <laughs> he was brought up on charges of false doctrine for that statement, which is hilarious. Um, it just it just might show you the focus of some people, even in our own church body, what what they will you know focus on over other things. But, I mean, it's right. It's true. All, all theology is Christology. No matter what you have to say about God, you're always saying something about Jesus uh, as the word incarnate and, and that what he has done, is doing, and will do is central to uh, our lives as Christian here and now and there in eternity. So, yeah, and, and eschatology is worthwhile, but like you said, if you spend too much time as, if you spend too much time in it, it can be paralyzing because at some point you just have to, well, say what you can say and then be quiet where you must uh, and just let God do His thing for the end because that's what's going to happen anyways, <laughs> you know. Um, and but you can know as much as, he's he's revealed as much as we need to know, right? So, but with 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 this tend toward premillennialism where it says that Jesus will come again to establish his kingdom on earth, if we were to follow that trail, what sort of things would be affected by that constant referring back to a premillennial view? Like, what are the things that they believe in as premillennialists? Like, what does it say about the thousand-year reign? I have heard some
4: Christians, I think, recklessly assert that doing good works and trying to have a positive role in society are of diminished importance because Jesus is coming back soon and he's going to fix it all anyway. Oh, that's very interesting. I've heard that a few times, and various contexts. Okay.
0: So it's an excuse for, uh, a lack of good fruit, as it were. Um, an explanation for why you're lazy, basically, (laughs) in doing good works. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay. Very interesting. Um, yeah. and, And when, when, when we talk about these different Things. Uh when when it comes to es- eschatology and dispensationalism and premillennialism and all the other isms that he talks about in this chapter, these even even premillennialists of certain camps will disagree with other premillennialists as to how things will take place. I mean there's there's different little factions amongst even these three that he lays out on page two eleven, you know, but very generally he I think he does a pretty good job of giving the broad strokes of what is believed. And one of the things that is believed is that when it says, like on um, page 212, when he says, Pre- pre-millennialists teach that the world is entering a particularly difficult time, the various political events are fulfillment of, Bibl- of Bible prophecy, and that Jesus will return to establish an earthly kingdom where he will rule and reign from the throne of David in Jerusalem. Right? Uh, in the millennium... People will live to an extreme old age. There will be peace among the nations, and almost everyone will be holy at least until the end of this thousand years, when the devil will be loosed to lead a rebellion against the Lord and his people. And, you know, it goes on from there, um, where when Jesus puts down this last rebellion, he will cast the devil and all his followers into the lake of fire. There will be the resurrection and the last judgment, and after these things, the eternal state will begin. This, at least, is the chronology of the pre-millennialists, and it is not what scripture what the scriptures teach, as he goes into this chapter so when you believe that jesus will come and establish the earthly kingdom where he will rule and reign from the throne of david in jerusalem that alone gets people thinking well what what can we do to hasten the coming of christ uh, and believe it or not it's no small thing that uh, it's and this is, and you know, I'll try and stay on a, a clear path here. But you know, there are a lot of Christians who are Zionists, and they believe um, that you know, just there are some who believe that establishing the the nation state of Israel as it was in the Bible, reestablishing the temple, right, doing all these things, reestablishing the seat of David for Christ to reign. <clears throat> That will hasten the coming of Christ again. Um, you know that's that's why you get guys like John Hagee down in San Antonio, who will talk all about supporting the nation of Israel because that's what we're supposed to do to hasten the coming of Christ. Right? And maybe I'm maybe I am mischaracterizing Mr. Hagee a little bit there, uh, or maybe I'm being too broad with what he's saying, but. I've I've essentially heard that teaching from him. Uh, He may be a little more nuanced than that, but how is that problematic if you start to believe that there are things that you can do to hasten the coming of Christ? How is that problematic? Well, now we're acting upon God. Right. That's not good. Yeah. Yeah. We're in fact thinking that we can manipulate him to do what we want or whatever, and I don't know. It's it's one of those things where it's one of those things where it's very problematic in the very least sense uh, to say that we can do things to hasten the end, as opposed to just trusting that Christ will come when the Father sends him. Right? He says, "No one knows the day the the day or the hour. Not even the Son. Right? The Father knows." And it'll happen when it's supposed to happen. Um, so it's misguided for, those to, for, for certain Christians to believe that they can hasten the end in any way, shape, or form. Um, and yet, you're, at that point, you're, you're imposing upon God um, and in some ways putting him to the test, right? Which you should not do. Um, and then there's this whole thing about the, in the millennium, people will live to an extreme old age, peace among the nations, almost everyone will be holy. I mean, it's like, kind of like what you, what you were saying, Jake, that like people will say, well, I don't have to worry about doing good works now because Christ will come and establish this and then it will all be good. And then after that, we'll have to worry about things. No. Yeah, it's it's yeah. out of order. Not just out of order, it's all messed up, right? It's, it's not really the way Scripture lays it out. Um, so it reflects in other parts of their theology by uh, saying, you know, well, as we'll look a little bit later in the consistent literal hermeneutic, their understanding of the thousand-year reign, their understanding of um, the symbolism in the book of Revelation, understanding about, um, yeah, just how how to understand the correspondence between the Old and the New Testaments, right? Uh, as, as we'll see in this next question, but I don't want to jump the gun here unless y'all want to add some things uh, to that second question that I've missed or something you want to talk about. I'll leave it open to y'all for right now. It's kind of hard to keep all this straight. It's also interconnected. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to keep it all as straight as I can. Is there anything else that y'all would say that there's... That I missed as a part of a reflection of American Christian theology that's affected by pre premillennialism
1: I would say they probably don't have the comfort we have knowing that Satan isn't loose now.
0: Right. Okay. Um,
1: if they think that Satan won't be bound until the thousand-year reign, which hasn't happened yet,
0: I mean, Right, probably, according to their understanding, probably right? more
1: fear mm-hmm. in that worldview.
0: Yeah.
2: Isn't there another verse though about Satan who's wandering around like a roaring lion? Yeah. Seeking, seeking
0: those, those whom he will yeah, devour. right. That's actually that's actually part of our. Um, that's one. That's that's part of the memory verses for the month in our congregation at prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. To be sober, be vigilant. Uh, for your your adversary, the devil uh, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he will devour. Mm-hmm. Uh, resist him, firm in your faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's already he's out. Um, but and see, I I always get nervous talking about Revelation because I kind of get I tend to forget which order things <laughs> take place in. Um, where you see, um, so you would say that, um, they don't have the comfort, because they, uh, it's always trying to, trying to reconcile different eschatological frameworks is always a chore, I'll be honest with you. Um, so when they believe that we are not yet at the 1,000 years, right? Um, so you're saying that they don't have the comfort that we have? Well, maybe I'm reading it wrong. Um, I think it's what? Revelation 20 has the binding of the devil, right? Yeah. Yeah. Satan bound. Yeah, so so Satan is bound for 1,000 years. That's, that's what this is talking about. Maybe you mean that they don't have the comfort that we have knowing that because we live in the thousand years that Scripture talks about, that the thousand, as it's talked about in Scripture, according to how Scripture uses the the symbol of the thousand elsewhere, that it means that it's an indeterminate amount of time that we live in the thousand years symbolically at this time, and Satan is currently bound, right? Mm-hmm. That... Um, He is bound, and I've heard it put like this, that uh, he's like a dog on a chain, that he's got his yard, and as long as you stay out of his yard, you won't get bit, basically. You know what I mean by that? That um, maybe they don't have the comfort knowing that, uh, like, they're waiting for that time when they think Satan will be bound, because they'll look out in this world and they'll say, obviously Satan is reigning all over the place. He has free reign no matter what. So obviously the thousand years has not come yet. But we would say, no. I mean, if that was the case, the church would be nothing. The church would be gone, right? If that was the case, if it would be worse than what you'd think it was. But Satan is limited in his power. That we live in the thousand years now that he is bound up. and uh, And... Yeah, basically he's like a dog on a chain. He can only go so far, right?
2: Because Jesus descended into hell, right? When he he died...
0: That's a good question. (laughs) That's a good question. Um,
2: And then he arose.
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, When it comes to the descent into hell, that is kind of an open open issue as to what that really means oh. we know what happened uh-huh. we know that traditionally it's seen as christ proclaiming victory over death and the devil and right. showing his his dominion and sovereignty over over hell mm-hmm. um but as far as that being the reason why satan is bound i don't know I, that's i think it's funny to read to read luther on these things because mm-hmm. he'll because we get that from one of Peter's epistles where he talks about uh, where he went to the, uh, he preached to the souls in the days of Noah kind of thing, right? And, and you say, like, Luther's even like, I don't know what that means, but uh, it's part of our teaching about his descent into hell and the harrowing of hell, as we would say, too. And That's a whole other issue that we might be able to do our own Bible study on. It'd be kind of interesting mm-hmm. to see, like, the different the different um, viewpoints of what that means and the significance of it, but that's probably part of it. His conquering over sin, death, and the devil, yeah. Um, that now Satan has been thrown out of the heavenly realm, mm-hmm. as we see with Michael, the archangel, in the battle in heaven. Uh, that that he is no longer able to uh, accuse those in Christ uh, mm-hmm. sufficiently enough, right? He or he he just can't do it. Uh, To the point where his his arguments really matter anymore, because those who are in Christ have washed their robes clean in the blood of the Lamb. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, So, yeah, (laughs) all this all this Revelation talk it's all very cyclical, Mm -hmm. and so you have to kind of think about where you are in the cycle of this, that, or the other, and Mm -hmm. it it gets confused even if you see it in the right way. It's confusing. (laughs) It's very confusing. But then when you look at it into even more complicated dispensationalist frameworks, it gets even more confusing. Depending on how you view 1,000 years, 144,000, 12 tribes, which aren't really the 12 tribes if you look at them close enough. They're not really the historical 12 tribes of Israel like uh, Levi's not named in the twelve tribes, you know. Dan is missing. Yeah, and Dan's gone. So it's it's one of those things. It's like it's not really the twelve tribes. So we'll get to that point. So let's 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 keep it as simple as we can here. So I guess that that makes a good point for number two, though. How does the premillennialism reflect in other parts of American Christianity theology? Um, it causes confusion, right? There's a lot of confusion. About what's really going to happen, there's a lot of you know um, agree to disagree going on. Mm-hmm. When really you can say, yeah, we can dis we can ad- agree to disagree on where Scripture is silent, but where Scripture speaks, let's actually be bold in proclaiming what it says, right? But there's a lot of confusion um, and a lot of focus on things that we really shouldn't be obsessed with. Um, Kind of what was he saying? There's there's a lot of uh, churches that are like non-denominational or into some form of American Christianity that will make fellowship in the church uh, that 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 will make someone's view on the end times uh, a condition for fellowship in the church. Right? It's a primary uh, um, a primary focus of their faith. So. Um, that, I think, is also a big confusion as well. Um, it's not necessarily something we should harp on the most. So let's go to number three. <sighs> it's a lot of stuff to talk about. Why do dispensationalists make a distinction between Israel and the church? Let's start with that one. And you'll find that on page 218 and following... Why do you think they make a distinction between Israel and the church?
1: I said, I have no idea. <laughs> like, yeah, their explanation didn't help. <laughs> you know. Let's ask them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe it's just to know. Right
0: <laughs> yeah. So what is what is the understanding, what does he say about, um, how did they make that distinction between Israel and the church?
2: When he put the Jewish people rejected Jesus, then God went plan B. God yeah. went to plan B when Adam
0: and Eve ate the fruit that they were <laughs> supposed to eat. <laughs> right. you know? And even that was arguably part of his song. Yeah, even right. that was yeah, arguably part it's, of the plan. It's, it's, right. it's, yeah. it's, all, it's all one of those things where it's like, yeah, plan B. Ah man, that's yeah, that's that's problematic to say the least. Um, so it's 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 a way to try to explain and reconcile the old covenant with the new covenant, right? Um, and it's and it's for some reason, uh, you know, like I said before, that there are some Christians who are Zionists in the fact that they want, you know, to to recreate the nation state, um, the nation state of Israel, right? And for some reason, they'll have this view that Jews. That ethnic Jews are still God's chosen people, regardless if they believe that Jesus is the Messiah or not. Mm-hmm. And that, just, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. That does not reconcile with Scripture at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying that these people are a big group in uh, Christianity, but I, I know of people that do believe this. And so, this is still a form of dispensationalism that God has given a certain dispensation in the Old Testament, but now he has given us a new dispensation in the New Testament, and the dangers that that poses is that, well, I mean, the fact that God has a plan A and a plan B, but also the fact that I've never really heard anybody say that there's not more dispensations coming. You see what I mean? Um, That God... Could some, you know, in his sovereignty, he could come up with another dispensation. We don't know. Oh, What, is, what does that do? What, is, what does that create? I studied with folks who
4: actually advocated for that position. Really? And the idea was that there is coming a dispensation when Israel and the church would be united I think is rather ironic. Sorry. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh. <laughs> they they but... <laughs> couldn't help but see it in Scripture, right? <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but I mean, oh my goodness. Because sooner or later you have to end up with one people of God for all of eternity. That's right. And if it hasn't happened yet, well, then it must still be about to, and there's your next dispensation. Right, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> And where does it stop? That, that, that,
0: that, 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 that's what I want to know. It's oh, very interesting. Um, you know, I I don't mean to, um, well, I'll, I'll just say this up front and I'm sure I'll reiterate it at some point in time, but, you know, we can, we can kind of chuckle at these ideas and that is to chuckle at an idea, but not at people, you know, uh, that is to say, you know, that we, we should point out how certain ideas and certain ways of thinking or theology are ridiculous, but... Because we're amongst friends, we can kind of talk freely and, and kind of chuckle here and there. But when you're actually talking to somebody about these things, you know, you need to understand how to approach them so that they'll be able to hear it rightly, or do the best you can to make sure that they're they're not put on their heels, as it were. Because um, in all earnestness, they are they are probably doing what seems as pious and godly as they can muster, but they probably need to be gently pointed out that's not the case you know that scripture is very is actually clear about who israel is um that even in galatians paul talks about uh the children of the promise you know that uh that we by faith are the children of the promise and the promise was given to abraham isaac and jacob who is israel right that we are descendants of israel by faith Now, there's neither Jew nor Greek, Um, there's Jew Jew nor Gentile, you know, all are one in Christ, right? So, yeah, but when you get to dispensationalism, you get into some hairy things. Uh, So that that poses a danger of not really understanding the proper distinction of the church, Uh, understanding Israel, even... um, even in the Old Testament, who would graft people into the covenant, right? Um, by faith and adherence to the covenantal law by faith, right? Um, I mean, what do you do with all the Gentile, the ethnically Gentile believers? What do you do with Rahab, right? Uh, what do you do with Rahab, um, who was a prostitute in Jericho and now she's part of the lineage of Christ? You know, so it's 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 dangerous to only stay on these ethnic lines uh, and not understand it as a matter of faith in Christ as a prevailing um, factor. Okay, um, and there are other things. Are there other? Is there more there that I'm missing? Well,
1: thinking that. God had to come up with a plan B. Is is saying God isn't omniscient,
0: mm, mm-hmm. right? Omniscient, or even omnipotent, or anything like that. He's not really divine. He's not mm-hmm. really. He's not really sovereign, as we would say, too. So yeah, it creates a lot of problems. And um, again, to reiterate on what, page two nineteen about how uh, it raises back up this. Uh, dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles um, that Christ has done away with, as we see in Ephesians 2. You know, that uh, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near the blood, by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two right and so on and so forth. So yeah, it creates creates some problems. And it's funny cuz when I read that I thought to myself, "Oh, you're trying to do the thing where we already have the understanding of the visible and the invisible church." Maybe. I don't know if that's part of it. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. The visible church and the invisible church or uh the the hidden and the unhidden church, however, however you want to say it. Um, Luther expounded upon it, but he got it from St. Augustine, right? This understanding that um, there is the visible church, what we see here on earth, but that doesn't necessarily automatically one-to-one like one correspond with the invisible church where God knows who are true believers who really have faith and things like that. That even the church, people on Sunday, there's more than likely... <laughs> a few in there who aren't really true believers, right? So it's it's this, a deeper thing that I think that they're trying to touch on with this distinction between Israel and the church, but they do, but it's just confusing it even more. You know, it's just making it even more and more 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 confusing. Um, Any other thoughts on that before we move on here?
2: I think a long time ago, like when we were children, everybody Mm -hmm. went to church. Mm -hmm. Hardly anybody didn't go to church. But were they there just to be seen in church? Or did they really believe what they were hearing in church? Is what you're saying?
0: That's a good question. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, yeah, there's a possibility of that. Even in in Luther's day, he would say, you know, that, that there are people in the church who aren't true Christians, you know, Um, even though they've been baptized and even though they come every Sunday, you know, but Mm -hmm. we don't know who they are. We can't point them out necessarily, but God knows who they are because he knows their heart. Right. Uh, And it's not our job to root them out. Right. Right. Um, (laughs) It's not our job to root out who's a true Christian and who's not a true Christian. Um, But we should we should know each other well enough to understand if somebody is believing wrongly on a certain issue so that we can encourage them to repent or to you know know the truth better and things like that, mm-hmm. right that doesn't mean we we kick them out willy nilly, but it means that we bear with them in patience and love, right yeah, but yeah. <laughs> Back in the day, yeah, everybody went to church. Yep. I would imagine there was a good number of them that may may have done it for reasons that weren't necessarily because of their faith. You know, I don't know who they are, I don't have names, so
4: don't ask me. But. the point you can militarize the entire church to invade Palestine. What's that? <laughs> it's pretty clear that there's goals there that are not Christ, you know? Right. I'm not thinking of the medieval church. Oh, yeah. Know, oh, yeah. All of crusades. Europe, apparently, just goes right. on crusades and commits genocide, like... That was the church visible at that time. It was really appalling. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that's where Augustine's distinction is, is helpful to us. Not everything that appears to be the church is. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and in our day and age, that maybe could be... Uh, we, we we may have a better idea as to um, visible churches... Well, we we may have a better idea as to... How can I get this? As to uh, what the visible church looks like today um, and what is a direct correspondence to the invisible church, that like, you know, there's a lot of churches that look like church. But when you go inside them and you see what's going on and you hear what's being preached. Like the churches. Y- yeah, that mm-hmm. or, or, or even. Fellowships what? that don't even yeah. call themselves church. Yeah, mm-hmm. fellowships that don't call themselves church. Even I would even say like the United Church of Christ. Which my uh, my father in law calls uh, says you know it's UCC, which he says stands for Unitarians Considering Christ, um, <laughs> which is pretty much the case. I mean they don't they don't they don't really believe much. They, they're they're not doctrinally strict, mm. except for maybe the spirit of the age that's you know mm-hmm. reigning sort of thing. And some people believe Unitarians or a church or Seventh Day Adventists or a church uh Seventh Day Adventists I mean they are triune as far as I understand mm-hmm. in their understanding so I wouldn't kick them out of the church catholic mm-hmm. uh, the universal church for that reason you know because mm-hmm. they might have different ideas they have church on Saturday mm-hmm. I mean <laughs> it is it is what it is yeah. they might they might have other teachings I don't know much about the Seventh Day Adventists yeah. but at least I know that they are ecumenically Christian, unless anybody knows something different. No, but like Jehovah's Witnesses though, or yeah. Mormons, we would yeah. say that they are not Christians. Uh-huh. Uh, and Unitarians are not Christians right. um, because they inherently deny Christ by saying that there are other ways to heaven besides no. Jesus, or even like you can be a and it, all 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 roads lead to heaven. Basically, is what they mm-hmm. believe. So, um, anyways, uh, anyways, yeah. So the visible church and the invisible church, that's a key distinction we can touch on in a different class. Um, so let's, let's look at the, um, consistent literal hermeneutic as we see on page 220. What's the danger of the so-called consistent literal hermeneutic? First of all, what is the consistent literal uh, what is what is the consistent literal hermeneutic? Do you all know what do you, know, do you know what um what that means system for interpreting is right. a hermeneutic. Yeah. A hermeneutic is a way that, you know, biblical hermeneutics is how you interpret the Bible basically. A system for interpretation. So what is it to have a consistent literal hermeneutic according to what Pastor Wolfmuller is um, saying about dispensationalists here? What do they mean by that?
2: They take the thousand years literal.
0: Right. Okay, there's that. Uh, and they try and take the 144,000 literally, mm-hmm. right? Um, what's, what's the danger?
2: Well, most of us aren't saved. Only 144,000
0: get in. <laughs> right, like the Jehovah's Witnesses believe, right? Yeah, there's only gonna be 144,000 in heaven. Um, and what's the danger about believing in a literal 1,000 years? Well, it ought to have ended about a thousand years ago, right. Yeah. right? yeah, right. It's over. Yeah, yeah. It Started at a point we haven't identified yet. That's right. Which is what premillennialists would believe, right? And it's to come. So, and what did y'all think about what he said on page 213 about that? Where he's talking about the number 1000 in the Bible, right? Um, then he says that the Bible uses the number 1000, um, often uses the, the number 1000 in a symbolic sense. So mm-hmm. Psalm 50, verse 10: For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. But what about the 1000 in first hill, right? Uh, it too certainly belongs to the Lord. In fact, all the cattle on the hills belong to the Lord, and that's the point. And a thousand is used to capture the completeness of the Lord's rule and his utter lack of need. He says, If if I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. And then I thought that was very interesting about Psalm 105, where he says that he, he is the Lord our God, his judgments are in all the earth, he remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. Does the Lord forget his promise for the thousand and first generation? I mean, he says certainly not. In fact, if we take this to mean a literal 1,000 generations, we would be in trouble because according to the scriptures, we are probably less than 200 generations from Adam and we are nowhere close to 1,000 generations, which would mean, if we read this to mean a literal 1,000 generations, this world would need another 32,000 years before the Lord could in fact keep this promise. All right. So it's, Basically, the thousand generations means forever, right? Just just like uh, in Exodus with the Ten Commandments, that he shows love and um, that that he shows steadfast love and mercy to the thousandth generation of those that love him and keep his commandments, right? It's forever for all that do this, right? Um, so what's so the danger of thinking there's a literal thousand years is missing the point, right? um uh, I mean, it's a good thing to try and take things literally in the Bible um it's just you have to be very careful about what you do um, does it make y'all nervous to say that there are some things we need to take in the Bible symbolically or maybe not so literally? Does that make y'all nervous? I mean um, sorry go ahead go ahead <laughs> no. so I always I was
4: just recurring thought I have about Genesis 1, where the narrative of creation begins with two or three evenings and mornings and days, and then the sun and the moon up here. Right. You are know, like, what kind of evenings and mornings have I just been dealing with? Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you're... If there's if no sun to rise or set,
0: yeah. Yeah,
4: and if you're hung up on literal interpretations, you're not going to make it off the first page of Scripture.
0: Right. Yeah.
4: It's not that those things aren't helpful and, you know, the Red Sea wasn't parted. So that's a dis- you know but but that whole conversation is a distraction from what scripture is <laughs> is driving at, which is Christ, the first promise given after the fall involves as we pointed out in this class, the seed of a woman, like you don't get that through literal eyes, you right. don't right. get that through the eyes yeah. of the flesh,
0: and I think mm-hmm. those two are are closely related, yeah good point very very good point um yeah, so on some level, I will, I will admit, on some level, I was nervous whenever I would read, like, Revelation and say, like, people would say, you have to take these things symbolically. And I thought, well, don't shouldn't we take these things literally? You know? I mean, shouldn't we take... Because on some level, people believe that to take the Bible literally means that you take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Those are two different things. Um, the, or they're not mutually exclusive, I guess I could say also. That... Um, you can take the Bible seriously um, and understand certain parts that are meant clearly to be symbolic, like the you know certain parts of the Book of Daniel, Ezekiel, um, you know, and apocalyptic um, books like those, uh, like Revelation as well, and see those things as trying to put a heavenly reality within some sort of context that we might be able to grasp to understand. Just the basic, um, the basic point of what's being told. So yeah, so don't be afraid to see that we have to take certain things symbolically, uh, but other things like you know, was was Jonah swallowed by a fish? Is that symbolic or is that literal? Or is, or is that did, did that actually happen? Yeah, it actually happened. It's not something that we should say was only symbolic of you know him being swallowed by his guilt or some sort of mythological <laughs> thing or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, it's 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 supposed to be taken literally because there's no indication that you shouldn't. But when it comes to John and his revelation and, and the revelation that was given to him, uh, we should see these things. He's trying to explain a heavenly reality in a way that we can understand it, which is. Symbols. So, you know. It's tough. That's right.
4: It's tough. At the point so, of reading someone describing a vision, like right? If you are in a genre other than the historical or the literal. And I right. think you pointed that out by implication. That there are different genres in scripture, and paying right. attention to what kind of thing you're reading can help a lot. Yeah. Now, Genesis 1 is written in a poetic structure. Little wonder if it doesn't use literal language, right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> right. like it's a poem. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It's very, po- yes, it is poetic. It is in that structure. Um I and, taught
2: Sunday school
0: with the geologist
2: and so he oh. was like <laughs> it's not six 24 hour days. Oh, as, as, far
0: as far as you can tell. As far as yeah. you can tell, yeah. Right. I mean
2: and you know, we're like, Well, how do you know what
0: God called today? Well, and, and that's that's the thing. It's like people will say all this stuff like, you know, well, maybe it was symbolic. It's like, well, okay, well. I don't know. It, then, then um, why wouldn't it be six days? Yeah. Why, why are you not?
1: claiming that hours only exist when the sun is in the sky? Yeah.
0: It's it's trying right. to it's trying to know the fullness of the mind of God, and it's just like let's just trust His word and what right. it says. Right. Just leave it alone. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, you don't necessarily have to understand everything about it. You'll you'll know when you get to the end because it'll all be revealed to you then as to how all this could be. And even then, your mind will be boggled, you know. Mm-hmm. So just leave it alone. Trust trust the word. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's a danger to the consistent literal hermeneutic because it just it doesn't read things rightly, um, and it causes again more confusion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the Bible, like he says, teaches us a consistent hermeneutic, and it's really Christ, right? If you're going to take anything literally, let's literally look at what Christ. Has done, is doing, and will do, in what the Bible says. Right? Um, that is that should be our consistent, uh, our consistent hermeneutic, our way of interpreting things. Right? Um, any other thoughts on that before we move on? Pardon me for one more. Sure.
4: Um, I I don't think we always have to choose between reading things literally and reading them. Morally, or tropologically, or christologically. Sure. Um, I don't remember if it was Gregory or Hugh of Saint Victor, but one of those five or six hundreds AD guys. Yeah. Asserted that every word of Scripture has at least four meanings. Right. And, you know, and he lists them all out. Says you can read everything literally, and you can read everything morally. And I think that's probably a bit of an exaggeration, but I like the idea of being able to reread Exodus. From different points of view you know so I can read the story of the plagues and I can imagine that many locusts as best Mm -hmm. I can and I should (laughs) that's the literal (laughs) meaning and I should imagine having all of my food eaten because I sinned and God is mad and that's like a moral significance or a legal significance Mm -hmm. and I should imagine um, also that God is doing something for his people by bringing them out from the world and yeah. that's a crystallogical. Sign- you know, sure, you can go back through the story. Soteriological and, and
0: everything too. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
4: There's, there's so many things going on at any point in scripture. That, yeah, uh, and that's one reason you can you can spend your life reading the book and
0: never wear it out. No, <laughs> yeah. it's the best. It's the best thing you could ever read. I mean, seriously, it's the book of books. Um, yeah. So yeah, you. Again, isn't it a isn't it a logical fallacy to have a false dichotomy? Yeah, yeah. so it's like, you don't necessarily always have to have it either-or all the time, especially when it comes to the Word of God, which is so multifaceted that you can never get to the bottom of it. You can always read it multiple different ways and always pull more out of it. It's, yeah, so yeah, never really just stick to that one or, either-or. That, that's that's why I always, I got, sorry, I'll get back to the point in a second here. But it's like, it's like talking about the theories of atonement you know, um, that it's either it's either the penal substitutionary atonement, otherwise known as the Anselmic atonement theory, or it is, you know, the Christus Victor, that Christ is triumphant, or it's, it's like, isn't it all of them? I mean, he, is, he has conquered sin, death, and the power of the devil by being our substitution for sin. And all, it's like all these different things, I just can't, I just don't understand why people get into this whole thing of like, it has to be one or the other Mm -hmm. when it comes to these things. Um, Surely at certain points we ought to emphasize one over the other, given the circumstances, but that doesn't mean that they're always, you know, supposed to be pit against each other. So anyways, yeah. 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 Um, That's why theology has historically been known as the queen of the sciences. You know, that... If you know, if if you are a master of theology or a doctor of theology, then you actually have more insight into the world and the way things work than even like a doctor or a lawyer or chemist or a traditional scientist, right? So, try saying that in a university to, uh, today, though. Uh, probably not going to happen unless you're on like a Christian campus or something, and maybe not even so much of that anymore. Anyways, all right, so... Uh, how about, let's go on to number five. Uh, talk about a false dichotomy. Is history about the glory of God or the salvation of mankind? <laughs> what do you think?
2: I put both, but I may have totally misunderstood. The Bible is history. Yes. I mean, if you read it, like the Babylonian people and mm-hmm. how they overthrew Jerusalem mm-hmm. and parted off all the gold and stuff. So you can follow history and it's what the Bible says it is. Yeah. But but that part has nothing to do with our salvation. If you're just looking at from a historical mm-hmm. point of view of what okay.
0: happened in the earth at that point in time. it It's, it, it's connected, but yeah, I guess like on a timeline. Yeah. Well, actually, you know, I think it probably does have some, you could probably find a way. I could find a way uh to make it about, about our salvation. But no, I see your point that like but I think you you're right, it is both. Mm-hmm. Uh, should we pit the glory of God against the salvation of mankind? What is the glory of God? <laughs>
2: That's <hilarious>. glory.
0: <laughs> it's, it's 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 right there in the question.
1: Having believers to glorify him. Yeah,
0: it it, it is the salvation of mankind. Right. That that God would die, you know, in Christ, the the second person of the Trinity would die for the likes of mankind. We did not deserve it, right? So that they would be saved. That the um, that what is that. We can talk about this. Oh yeah, yeah, that dispensationalist that the purpose of history is the glory of God rather than the salvation of mankind. It misses the whole point of the cross, Mm -hmm. right? That Jesus speaks of his cross as his glory um, where he talks about, you know, that, that the son of man will be lifted up so that all will be drawn to him, right? That we talk sometimes about uh, the states of Christ in his state of humiliation and his state of exaltation, right? Have y'all heard of these terms before? That oftentimes we will automatically assume that the cross is the height of Christ's humiliation, when in fact it is his exaltation, it is where he is glorified. Uh, Paradoxically, to our minds, he is glorified on the cross because in the cross is where the sins of the whole world are paid for in full. Right? Um, That to say, to see the glory of God as anything other than salvation in Christ is to miss the point and really is to become, as Luther would call, uh, a theologian of glory as opposed to a theologian of the cross. Okay, that that a theologian of glory is only concerned with what the flesh would glorify. Whereas a theologian of the cross is concerned with how the flesh has been crucified in Christ. You know, I mean, there's there's more to it than that. But um, also a theologian of glory would see temporal benefits and blessings as the end-all be-all of faith. As opposed to seeing Christ being glorified in pain and tribulation and uh, and and suffering, right? That um, the two don't mix. The theologian of glory and the theologian of the cross. Either one or the other. Sorry to throw something new into all this, but but that that's what it kind of made me think of on the moment. Any thoughts about that, number five?
4: Hannah gets it right in 1 Samuel 2, when she asks, Who is like the Lord our God who seats himself on high, who humbles himself to look at things in heaven and on earth? Mm-hmm. And she's got two points. He has to humble himself to deal with us. And he does. Mm-hmm. And there's nobody like that. Yeah.
3: <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we have a really good setting for that in our, in our hymnal, actually. I'll have to, I'll have to pull, pull it out later, just make you think of it. It's kind of cool. Um, but you're right, yeah, the Song of Hannah. Um, and even the Magnificat, too, if you want to throw that in there, too. He is, um, Total ripoff, by the way. Yeah, and know, right? Mary, <laughs> plagiarist. Um, so, yeah, so the glory of God uh, is to humble himself for our sakes. For sure. For sure. All right, how about number six? Um, the author gave five rules for reading the book of Revelation, starting on page 227. Um, let's recap those real quick. Uh, rule one, remember who is being revealed, and that is Jesus. All right. uh, number two, in the book of Revelation, remember who this book is for, which is the church of all time. Uh, Rule three, scripture interprets scripture, right, that the clear parts of scripture should help us understand the parts that aren't so clear. Uh, Rule four, put together what you hear and what you see. So in the book of Revelation, you hear one thing and you see a different thing, like the lion of Judah, um, the lion of the tribe of Judah, you hear about that, but then when he looks and he sees, he sees a lamb, right, but they are one and the same. So put together what you hear and what you see. Rule number five, notice the movement from earth to heaven, that in the midst of despair, by looking at the things going on in earth, John is then taken up and seen past the veil at the heavenly reality that Christ is still um, reigning on the throne, right? To give him comfort and hope. So of all these five rules, which of the... Which of these rules jumps out at you the most?
4: Number four was new to me. I thought it was cool. Number four. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna have to reread Revelation sometime when I have a couple weeks. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's kind of just, just to apply rule four and see what happens. Sure. I, I've never used that.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I feel the same way about five. Like, I want to reread Revelation now, because I've heard at one point that a lot of parts of Scripture are written very cyclically. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of the Hebrew history and a lot of the prophecies Mm -hmm. will kind of go back and repeat the same same thing, and so that's kind of how I have been reading Revelation, but I like how Wolfmuller says that instead of thinking of the different chapters as different, like, arcs of a circle, he says the different chapters are more or less concurrent. Right. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, to reading it through that lens.
0: And this is probably a very new. Um, I mean, it's still new for me, too, thinking this way, that there are two different ways of thinking about time. Uh, there's the Western idea, and this is very broad. I know there's probably more you can say about it. But in, in, in the Western mindset of time, we think very linearly. Right, it's on a timeline, so it's like here's the beginning, all right, and there's the end, and things happen in the middle. Right? That's time, that's that's how it works, that's a timeline. But in the Eastern mindset, it's more like a corkscrew. You know, so like the beginning is up here and the end is down here, and this part looks very similar to that part. And this part looks very similar to that part. You know, it's cyclical in that way that it's more like a corkscrew, and that's how the book of Revelation really is a lot. Um, which makes it a little tough to track sometimes what's going on. So, yeah, it's worth a reread, especially with, that, with, with those things in mind, the uh, putting together what you hear and what you see, and then movement from earth to heaven, because it happens several times throughout the book. So, yeah. An old pastor of mine used to
4: say, the bulls are the seals are the trumpets, man. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> the bulls are the seals are the trumpets. Yeah. That's great.
0: What do you do with the horsemen though? <laughs> yeah. The horsemen are a puzzle. The the horsemen are interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So but I I like I like this this way of seeing time a little bit better because it actually corresponds with scripture better. Uh, because um, there is there there's a what is it? I guess you could call it a Semitic um, un- understanding um, that the that they coined coined a phrase in German of all places uh, because German theology is you know known known to be the best in a lot of ways that um, the that 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 the end times are the beginning times. What it means is that what is in the end is the way the beginning should have been, right? That in the, in the beginning, there is supposed to be paradise and the garden and bliss and joy in the presence of God. Sin corrupts this and sets us on a spiral, but the end is supposed to be like the beginning. See, and that, that kind of makes it a little bit easier to see it that way than, than to see here and here, because then it's all kind of separated in some way, you know? Um, just a different way of thinking, different way of thinking. Uh, so y'all, so you said five, you said four, we got, yeah, you like four? All right, put together what you hear and what you see. Um, yeah, I, I, I like that one personally. Because I like the whole thing about how, you know, again, the 12, the 144,000, the 12,000 from the tribe of Judah and Reuben and Gad and so on and so forth, right? Um, but it's kind of funny because it's like, okay, it's the tribes of Israel. Uh, but then all of a sudden you see, and I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number.
3: Right.
0: Yeah, and that was from every nation, all tribes, all peoples, all languages, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like what happened to the tribes of Israel, right? Oh, it matters because <laughs> yeah, swallowed up by faith, really, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um,
4: almost as though those who believe are the children of Abraham. It's almost <laughs> as though <laughs> it's almost as
0: though Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness, right? Yeah. Uh, and that uh, and and that the righteous live by faith. Isn't that interesting? Um, yeah, that's, that's funny. Yeah, and then not to be outdone though, rule three is a very important rule. Uh, you cannot read Revelation by itself. Uh, you have to read it within the light of other books that are more clear. Uh, otherwise, you wind up with all kinds of interesting ideas. Um. <laughs> what? <well, laughs> That's an
3: understatement
4: uh, Yeah, right. The Anabaptists, who decided, what was it, 1540 or something, somewhere in Germany. Munster. Munster. There we go. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Based on reading Revelation by itself.
0: Anyways. Yeah. If you want a good, what is it? <laughs> they just recently took those bodies down. You know that, right? Oh, uh, they did. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, they took them down. They took them down finally. Oh. So if y'all don't know the story, I'll summarize it in brief. That in the town of Münster, Germany, it was a walled, walled town. Uh, and it was in the midst of the Reformation and, you know, all this stuff going on. Um, and there were all these different characters that were a part of it. And there was an Anabapt- there's there a sect called the Anabaptists, those who would baptize again. And uh, they believed that the second coming of Christ was going to happen in Munster, of all places, and so they decided to create their own city of God there, and it was basically a reign of terror in a lot of ways, and the city was besieged by the Holy Roman Emperor's forces and uh, eventually sacked, and you know it it was a long siege, there was like starvation, there was all kinds of cannibalism, and all this, it was a horrible thing, and then in the end In the midst of the frenzy and the tumult and all this stuff like that, they caught the main perpetrators that that they could find that they that that didn't die in the battle. They caught them, and then they uh, proceeded to execute them in probably the most heinous way you can imagine, uh, which involves like you know blowing fiery tongs and um, you know pulling off body parts and things like that and then putting their skeletons in cages and hanging them from the top of a tower uh, to remind people don't do this again and then they tore down the walls of the city so that it could never happen again <laughs> and like I said they just recently took the skeletons down uh, a couple of years ago I think it was so yeah it's very interesting times history is very rough at times mm-hmm. um, yeah, but I think that they got exactly what they deserved, because it was it was horrible what they did to those people. Um, anyways, if you want to know more, I can give you a good podcast to listen to. Um, it's very interesting. I you were going to say that's another Bible study. Hey, you could, you know? A little historical study there. Why not? Why not? It was during Luther's time, so it's kind of interesting. Uh, but yeah, so and also back the rules. Uh, Remember who Revelation is for, the church of all all time, and that Jesus is the one who is ultimately being revealed, right? Um, All key things. Um, So, any thoughts, last last words on chapter 10 before we move on here to chapter 11 and close off? This one won't take very long, but um, any closing thoughts on chapter 10? Kind of interesting, huh? It's a good chapter, y'all think? Yeah. Good. 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 All right, chapter eleven. Since we're going a little over right now, um, chapter eleven. We'll we'll do away with the high, highlights. It's a short chapter, but um, the title of the chapter is "Surprised by the Gospel," and Pastor Wolfmuller says, "You know, the gospel is always a surprise." Is that true? Is it always a surprise? It's pretty clear. Pretty clear?
2: Uh-huh. That Jesus died for our sins, mm-hmm. and if you have faith in him, you will be saved.
0: Yeah. Is is that surprising, though? No. No? Well, he Yeah, okay, there. on some level it's probably not, yeah. Um, how could it be surprising? Let me ask it that way. It's irrational. Irrational?
1: That. God, who created everything, would subject himself to death for right. people who spurn him. Mm-hmm.
0: Right, yeah, who who hate him, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so that's, that's surprising. Uh, anything else that might be surprising about that? Yeah, that God would die for those who don't deserve it? That you are included, maybe, mm-hmm. in that group of people, right? You don't deserve salvation, but God grants it to you by faith. Um, and, uh, yeah, so in a sense, maybe if you know who God is and you believe what the Bible says about him, then maybe the gospel is not a surprise, right? Maybe that's exactly who you would expect God to be as a gracious God. But in and of yourself as a sinner, I would imagine that you would probably be surprised from time to time to hear your sins are actually forgiven. Um, so then number two, uh, sin forgiven, the devil destroyed and death swallowed up all for you. How is this gospel surprising? I'm not a big fan of these questions. They're not, they're oh, not just we're
2: not worthy. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Christ died for sinning. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: You're not worthy for your sins to be forgiven, for the devil to be destroyed, or for the death to be swallowed up for you. Okay, anything else? Anybody else want to add to that? It's a gift. It's a gift, gift. That's yeah. That's right. Yeah. It's
4: grace. What is a gift? What is
0: a gift? What is a gift? Yeah. It's free. <laughs> That's Unearned. That's right. Unearned, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's also free. Yeah, it mm-hmm. is. Yeah.
4: You cannot do anything. It's yeah. given to you. Right. that's right. It's just
0: that simple. That's right. Um, and what a great gift. Mm-hmm. Uh, sins forgiven, devil destroyed, and death swallowed up. Uh, not 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 always just for other people, but for you. Uh, that's that's the that's the thing. <laughs> um, that's the difference between you know direct discourse and indirect discourse, uh, if you know what I mean by that. Indirect discourse would be, would, would be, to if I was preaching the gospel, and I would soften it a little bit by saying, you know, sin is forgiven for us, right? That's kind of indirect, right? Mm-hmm. The devil has been destroyed for us, or death has been swallowed up for us. And I do say that from time to time, but I always, I try to keep in mind what my what a professor of mine said at the same when he's like, he said, you know, um, you should, whenever you're speaking about law and gospel, do do your best to speak in a direct discourse that you are condemned in your sin apart from Christ, but because of Christ, you are saved from eternal hell and damnation. Right? That's direct discourse. Mm-hmm. And he said, and he put it a good, good way this way too. He said, Indirect discourse is like going to see a lion in the zoo. Direct discourse is being in the pen with him. (laughs) It's a different thing. It's a different thing. Yeah. So it's kind of a fun thing to keep in mind. Um, And that's surprising, right? (laughs) It's surprising. Um, So when, when it comes to death, though, we see that we see him highlight. The uh, story of the widow of Nain, mm-hmm. right with her son, um, and with one word, with a word, Jesus undoes death, sadness, tears. This funeral, <laughs> this funeral procession. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> he undoes the ruling and reigning of death in this village of Nain. Um, this is such a. I'm sorry. I just have to rail these questions. It's just not all that great sometimes. How does he have that power? He's God. That's yeah. Yeah. Question in the whole study so far. Yeah, I know. In that, in that,
4: I mean, it's. it's in what terms shall I explain to you the power of God? Right? Yeah. Right. Right. Sorry. <laughs> uh, if
0: if if the Reverend Doctor Mark Moreno is listening, I you know, apologize, but um, you could have done better. Yeah. Um, uh, right. Right now, I'm trying to read. Um, I'm trying to read uh, Cyril of Alexandria's treatise on the unity of Christ. And after that, I'm probably going to go read Chemnitz's um, work on the two natures of Christ. And then I'll probably refresh myself on what it talks about in the Book of Concord about the two natures of Christ. And the, the communication of the attributes, the divine and the human. And I mean, how do you, how do you plumb the depths of that? You know, but yeah, he is God made flesh, very simply put. He is the God man, uh, divine.
1: And God's words do things.
0: Yeah. Mm hmm.
1: They cause action. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, God's word is, it it does not return void. It, like you said, does things. That's very well put. Um, it is creative in its very essence, right? Um, It is always effective, yeah, and efficacious. So, yes, how does he have that power? Simple answer, he's He's God, God. he's God.
2: Yeah, I never thought about it this way. Jesus takes death, yeah, just said to the young man, Yeah, you're not dead. Yeah, it was very beautiful reading that, Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. Um, and it's it's a good thing to, that and like maybe the raising of Lazarus mm-hmm. or uh, Jairus' daughter or any of the other times he brought people back from the dead that you know, people will say, well, death is natural. That's well, just a part of life. And my wife put it very well one time, and I will give her credit for this, because I thought it was just very profound. She's like, if it was natural, then you wouldn't be afraid of it. Simply put. Like, if it, if it was a natural thing, you wouldn't be afraid of it. Anybody who says that they are absolutely not afraid of death, even if they're a Christian, I think on some level there's some truth there, but death is still still a scary thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if it wasn't scary, then we wouldn't need the constant reassurance that death has lost its sting and that it's been swallowed up, that it's been destroyed, Mm right? Right. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Any other thoughts on that? I love the scriptural image of crossing the River Jordan. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. which Christians have, I think, rightly appropriated as a metaphor for entering the, the heavenly kingdom of Christ through death. And that would make death something like plunging yourself into water, fully expecting to come back out again. Mm-hmm. Like when you jump into a swimming pool or you fall through the ice in a lake, it's shocking, it's cold. It's not something you seek out, that initial terror and, mm-hmm. and that physical reaction that your body has when you're suddenly immersed. But you can... Learn to expect it and to cope with it given appropriate training. And I I think Christianity might be something like that. Yeah. Like that discipline with regard to death. So that we can look at the lives or the deaths of the martyrs and Mm -hmm. sort of marvel that anyone would stare death straight in the teeth and say, you know, not in a welcoming sense, but come on, you know, or or I'm coming your way and I'm going to move through you. Hey, you're not a river that's going to drown me. I will emerge under the banks of Canaan. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. And and we would see that. And Lutherans, I think, with our emphasis on the sacraments that we have, we would see that as a, as a connection to our baptism as well. Yeah. That uh, in our baptism, we have already died with Christ and been raised to new life. Paradoxically... Because we already because we still have the, the sinful flesh that clings to us but that baptism being something that we keep going back to by faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit you know it's, it's, it''s in some sense it's it's plunging ourselves under the water over and over and over again the proper training to drown the old man, the old Adam so that the new man would um, rise forth you know um, that's sin. Yeah, I mean, it's not a coincidence that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, mm-hmm. you know, um, coming into the promised land, that, uh, that out of Egypt I have called my son, right? That Jesus is the new Israel, he is the new Adam, he is the new everything, the new man. Yeah, and we receive the benefits of that in our baptisms, for sure. Uh, so, although some people would say, oh, you Lutherans. I was trying to connect baptism to things. Sorry. It's in the Bible. What do you want from me? <laughs> Alright, so, <laughs> so how is and, and you know it's funny, you, you read this book about American Christianity, and it does a really good job of being pretty pretty objective. Uh, but then you are automatically reminded that this is a Lutheran pastor who needs to be able to say that the Lutheran Church is actually a good church to belong to. So he says that the Lutheran Church is an alternative to American Christianity. So how is the Lutheran Church an alternative to American Christianity? What does he say about it?
2: He found the Lord's mercy. Or the Lord's mercy found
0: him. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, that. Uh, how does he characterize American Christianity there on page 242 under the Amen uh, heading? It's a nice. lot like New Mexico. A lot like New Mexico? <laughs> how do you
4: mean? A vast wasteland, a <laughs> with no comfort and no peace. Hey, but it's home, right? God. <laughs> it's home. <laughs> I know.
0: Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny a vast wasteland uh. um, but don't worry there's a Lutheran church I can recommend in must resist so. <laughs> um, so yeah so but he's, he's yeah. alright so yeah a desert with no comfort no peace um, but yeah he's saying you know that, that American Christianity starts with me continues with my works finds comfort in my closeness to God and is always looking inside for hope and peace, um, which is the perfect recipe for pride and despair. Uh, But the scriptures give us something different, something better. Uh, In the scriptures, we find God long-suffering, abounding in steadfast love with an abundance of mercy for us. And the Lord has preserved this teaching in the world. And, you know, I was talking before about the visible church, and the invisible church, and I... I think I can be more bold now that I can probably defend this a little bit better. But like when I, when I was at the seminary, we we're pretty much told, or at least I had a discussion with some friends. And if you read Lutheran theologians, that they they are blunt and they have they have no qualms with saying that the Lutheran Church is the visible church on earth, uh, and it's not because of Luther, but it's because of the Word of God. Uh, not that you know, it says that the Lutheran Church is the visible church in Scripture, but just that the Word of God is what we hold as the standard, is the the norming norm of everything. That it is what we uphold, or we do so by faith, you know, by God's grace to uphold the Scriptures in their fullness. Um, and that was the whole point of the Reformation: was to correct the errors, was to not throw out, you know. Um, Certain traditions that were good, right, and salutary—that uh, scripture does not prohibit. You know, it's all this stuff. But it's like I'm becoming more and more convicted that yeah, the Lutheran Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, which is you know not just the Missouri Synod, by the way, uh, <laughs> but all the people, all 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 the churches that uphold scripture as the truly inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God and that uphold the Lutheran confessions and everything like that, we're the the Catholic Church, you know, small c. Um, Small c Catholic. We are part of the church universal that has been not since Luther, but since the apostles. You know, we we adhere to the tradition of the apostles built on the cornerstone of Christ. So um, that doesn't mean that there aren't blemishes on our church body of the Missouri Synod. That doesn't mean that we are perfect and infallible in ourselves, but that we strive toward the pure doctrine set forth in the Word of God. So, uh, and that means that we have a lot of comfort. Uh, I am not immune, <laughs> as a pastor, I am not immune to um, the desires to, you know, have a big church, have a lot of people have this have that have outward outward things that would point to some sort of you know benefit or glory in this world. I'm not I'm, I'm not immune from desiring those things. But I mean this this part kind of spoke to me where he says that you know there are outposts of the gospel. Streams of streams of living water flowing from pulpits, from fonts, and altars where Jesus is pleased to serve his forgiveness. These congregations are normally not very flashy, not very large, not very exciting. They are humble churches with humble people and pastors whose treasure is the pure word of God, law, gospel, and the sacraments. So, you know, you can kind of say that's kind of our church here in Fredericksburg. We're not we're not big, we're not flashy, but we strive for Purity of doctrine set forth in God's word, right? We strive for uh, embracing the comfort that is found in the sacraments, right? Uh, According to the word of God. So it provides a lot of comfort, you know? Uh, Any thoughts on that? Um,
2: The Missouri Synod Mm -hmm. has some more liberal and less liberal churches. Yep. Cuz we've been in both congregations. Yep. And I wanted to know does it depend on which where you went to school? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Missouri or Indiana? <laughs> 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 oh, that's such a funny question. Um, no. No answer. <laughs> no not necessarily. No. Not not necessarily. Um no, it's, it's it's kind of funny because, uh, yeah, there are some guys that came out of Fort Wayne that I would heartily disagree with on practice and uh, even as an extension theology.
2: Um,
0: mm-hmm. but, there are, but there are some men, some brothers that went to St. Louis that I would be arm in arm with on a lot of things, mm-hmm. you know, in practice and uh, doctrine. So it's just, no, I, I, think, I think the Missouri Synod can't. If if I can be candid for a minute, um, I think the Missouri Synod is fast approaching a time where I don't know. There's 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 coming to be kind of a boiling point. I think um, I don't I don't know how it will be resolved. I hope it will be resolved where we can remain in fellowship with other you know churches on a certain level and and understand what's important and you know what's What's within the realm of Christian freedom and this, that, and the other, mm-hmm. uh, but I think I think we're fast approaching a time where maybe, wh- whether whether we draw the lines or the lines are drawn for us, that eventually it's going to happen. Our system of um, our system of church govern- governance is mm-hmm. is one that works really, really good. Mm-hmm. It's a great system mm-hmm. when everybody's doing what they should be doing. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, but what happens when not everybody's doing what they should?
2: The the church we came from in mm-hmm. Carolina, mm-hmm. elders were women, some of yeah. them. Mm-hmm. and I said, "Why is this?" And they right. said, "Because we couldn't get the men to do it."
0: Mm-hmm. Right, and you'll never get the men to do it if you keep having women elders. I'll just be honest about that. Mm-hmm. There's no incentive. There's no incentive. Um, so yeah, and that has been a that's 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 been an issue. Um, the role of men and women in the church is is, is one of those things, and, and there's other things too. Yeah. Other things that have to do with um, church governance or even practice and. Yeah,
2: and whatever. like you always read the law and the gospel. anybody could be a reader.
0: Yeah, and that's that's audiophora. That's that's something where like I know plenty of you know good solid churches that have lay lay readers. Um, or, you know, but I mean, I see that as a, I've been offered, <laughs> people yeah. is like, I could read for you. I was like, I like to see that as, as like my service to y'all. You know, I like to do that for y'all. And, mm-hmm. and even though I know I'm, 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 I might struggle through it, I, it's like, it's like, it's what you pay me for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to do it. Yeah. Patience. Yeah. Patience. Yeah. And, and again, that's not, that. Lay readers are not something we should necessarily break fellowship because of, right? I just had never seen it. Yeah. In Lady Elders. I've
2: never seen them serving communion. And yep, that's another issue. It's like, wow.
0: Yeah, that's it's another different. issue. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's another issue. So it, it's it's all part of... I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of things going on. Um, like I said, whether the lines are drawn for us or we do it ourselves... I think it's going to happen at some point in time. I'm not going to prognosticate and say when, but I wouldn't be surprised if it would be within the time that I'm a pastor that something might happen. And I could be wrong. It could be way in the future. We may find a way to solve it. Who knows? Mm-hmm. I hope you are wrong. Yeah, I hope so too. I hope so too. I don't want to see... I do not I do not want to see a split. I don't want to see any sort of like division amongst brothers or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I would like to see reconciliation and and unification, if possible. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll see. We'll keep praying for it. Mm -hmm. Keep praying for whatever rifts there are to be healed. Um, So we'll see. God willing. I mean, we made it this far. We might as well (laughs) think that He can can sustain us even beyond. Uh, Which God is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. Of course He will, you know. Mm -hmm. Of course He will. as Yoda once said, gonna protest Protestants are. What's that?
4: <laughs> Say that again? Yoda. Yoda said, gonna protest Protestants are. That's right. That's right. Protestants. Part of, part of hammering through Scripture
0: in oh, that's, fellowship. That's so funny. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that's the end. I, I mean, I could ask, what, what can we do to proclaim the treasure that is the gospel? Um, but I would simply just answer that for y'all and just say, do what you can with the people that God gives you when he sure. gives them to you. You know, do what you can with the people that are right in front of you, right? That you're in close proximity with on a regular basis. Um, and as a little bit of a quick uh, touch on the appendix, did y'all read the appendix? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we do... Uh, I was surprised to learn, not from Pastor Wolfmailer, but before this, before this book, I was surprised to learn that you know we have in the Book of Concord um, a collection of documents, statements, and books that is unparalleled in a, in in any other tradition. Um, maybe except except for like the Roman Catholic Church, but they have a lot of documents that. Confuse and confound more than anything, and contradict. and contradict for sure. That ours actually clearly, accurately, and comforting, comfortingly, as Pastor Wolfmuller says, present the truth of God's word and reveals the biblical gospel uh, in the Book of Concord. So, we've done studies. We 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 did a study last year on uh, the Augsburg Confession and the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. Um, and I'm looking forward to at least once a year doing one of the books from the book of Concord as, as a topic of study for our Concord class. So, um, and we might just go down the list and just go, you know, the Augsburg, we, we we did the Augsburg Confession, the Apology, and we didn't go like super in depth. We didn't read all of the Apology because it's a, it's a long book, um, for one class but we'll probably go into like the small called articles next, not in this class, but this year we'll tackle it. Um, and then just go on from there and see what, see what we can do as far as seeing how the book of Concord really is a treasure that we should, uh, dive into often, uh, and be reminded of just, just the clarity of doctrine that our forefathers in the faith have, have handed down. Um, yeah. Any, any questions about that? Any thoughts about the book, maybe? Did y'all enjoy the book? Yeah. Yeah?
1: yeah it's a lasting place on my bookshelf.
0: Good! Yeah, it's a good book. Um, Pastor Wolf did a really good job uh, with it, and um, yeah. I highly recommend, so um, anyways uh, Hopefully, next time we meet will be after Easter, obviously. Um, and after maybe, hopefully, I can get a little time off. <sighs> I don't know why. why. would you want that? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's just one of those things, I guess. <laughs> Call me lazy. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I was thinking next, next, you know, I'm trying to do like a classic order, you know, so we keep it kind of like Keep the topics rolling and keep the studies going. I was thinking next time we meet, we'd go through a book of the Bible. Um, and I had already contemplated Romans. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. Yeah, that might take longer than ten like, weeks. Be a long yeah, yeah, we'll see. It may it may be the one that stretches over you know. Two, two quarters with a break in between or something like that. We'll see. But um, that I find that if we do a book of the Bible, though, it's easier for people to come in. They don't have to, you know, have, you know, like like our book study, people, can, people couldn't come in when we were halfway through. They wouldn't really understand the full context. But, you know, people can come in and out of a, a study on a book of the Bible sometimes and it makes it a little more comfortable for them. I'm fine taking my time on Romans. It's a good book. Um, so, unless somebody has another suggestion, and no, please do not say Revelation. Uh, (laughs) I need some time to put that one together. That one's, that one's uh, a whole other can of worms. That was this morning. They said, we could do Revelation. No, that's not going to happen. Not, not right now. Not right now.
4: Um. On Revelation, I know a pastor who's been in the same church for 35 or 38 years, preaching expositional series through books. And he put Revelation off until he'd been there 34 years. (laughs) And finally, after preaching through every other book of the Bible twice, he had to tackle it. Yeah, (laughs) for sure.
0: For sure. Yeah. Oh, man, expositional preaching, that's something else. <laughs> it's not unheard of in the Lutheran Church but um, it's, not, it's not really all that common okay. um, alright well that's our study uh, for, American Christi- for Has American Christianity Failed I'm glad that y'all joined us for it and that I'm glad y'all got something out of it um, I'm glad it has a lasting spot on your bookshelf and uh, don't hesitate to hand it on to somebody that might need it um, you know, or buy a copy for them if they need it. Uh, it's a good book. Um, so, any closing thoughts, comments, or anything? No. When's the next? When's the next one? No. <laughs> to be determined. Uh, I'll okay. I'll let you know. We'll probably start probably start sometime in May. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, something to look forward to. Probably start sometime in May. I'm not going right out. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I'll keep you all up to speed. Okay. Uh, but since we're at the end, how about let's close the way we normally do with the Lord's Prayer? Um, excuse me. Man, it goes to the whole class, and then all of a sudden, I stutter on the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> Our Father, who art in, in heaven, heaven hallowed, hallowed be in thy name. name.